R and R, and the R and R stands for relationships and for roles. Last week, we took a break in our series uh, because I was sick, and, um, and there are just some sicknesses you can't preach through. You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, all right? And so we're going to pick up where we kind of left off. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe that, um, um, that all of us have some concept of what marriage ought to be, some picture of what the ideal marriage looks like. And I think for those of us who are married, uh, we would probably all have to admit that we're just not there right? Uh, some might be closer than others. I, I understand that. I know there's probably some wonderful marriages here. Praise God for that. But I think if we were honest, or at least an attempt to be so, um, I think that we would have to agree that, that we have some, some, some room to, to grow. We, there's certainly room for improvement there. Now, in order to get where we want to be or need to be in God's ideal picture of marriage, then uh, we have to know where we are. We have to know where our marriages are at this point, and, and I believe the only way of actually doing that is to go back. And when I mean go back, I mean go back to the beginning. Um, go back to the beginning and retrace our steps and try to figure out how is it that we got here, or, or, or where was it that we kind of got off track. It's, it's only then that we can find out where we are that then we can begin to work our way to God's ideal uh, for marriage. So two weeks ago, this is what we attempted to do. Uh, we went back. And when I mean we went back, I mean we went way back to the beginning of Genesis in Genesis chapter 2 and, and begin to look at what God has, what God's ideal for marriage was and, and what he had uh, originally designed it to be like. And we saw there in the beginning of chapter, in chapter two, we saw two things. We saw number one is that God had designed marriage to be a partnership, to be a partnership. And that means that he didn't, he didn't create marriage to have two people at odds and at each other's throat all the time. That you two, that, that, that both of you have been brought together not to try to fight each other for your own selfish gain, but rather to be united, to work together, to be able to fulfill what it is that God would ultimately want you to fulfill in marriage. And we've been talking more about that. Uh, we also saw not only that God had designed marriage to be, um, to, to be a partnership, but also to be a provision of God. And what we mean that by that is when God gave you your spouse, he was giving you a precious gift. No, there's no givesies, backsies, takesies, backsies, no Indian given type stuff, all right? You can't, this is not a white elephant swap. You can't do that. This is your gift. Like it, right? And um, as your dad would say, but this is your gift. And the Bible says that we ought to be treating our spouse in such a way, loving them, cherishing them, treating them in that way. And what we found is when we begin to devalue our spouse, our husband and wife, it's not so much because of their sin. It's because of our sin. The devaluing of our spouse and not appreciating them comes more from our own sinful heart than it is whatever sin it is that they might be taking part in. So that's kind of a review of where we were. And if you haven't heard that, go back to that, listen to that on the text, because all these sermons are going to build on one another. So today we just want to pick up where we left off, continuing to lay a foundation for marriage and specifically this, what this relationship looks like. So as we said, God has designed it to be a partnership. He's designed it to be uh, a provision vision, but what we're going to find today in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is that God also designed it to be a progress, to be a progress. Now look, if you will, with your Bibles open just for a moment. If you're new to us, we use our Bibles a lot, right church? 
Yes, okay, so, so Genesis, uh, there, chapter 2, verse 24, the very first word, look at it, it's the word what? Therefore, right? And whenever we read the Bible, whenever we see the word therefore, we always ask ourselves the question, what? What is it therefore? And in this particular case, what it does is it lets us go back and it refers specifically to God's original command for Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and to have dominion over all the earth. So basically what's being said here in verse 24 is in light of that original command, this is how you're going to do it. This is the process by which you are fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth. It's through the process of marriage. And so what we find is we find two specific things. We find this process, and it's made up in just two parts. Very simple. It's made up in what we do and then what God does. That's it. That's the whole process of marriage. And so what we want to do is we want to take, a, take the remainder of the time and look at this process according to Genesis 2.24 of what the process of marriage really is. The first thing, again, is what we do. In other words, when we say I do, what are we actually taking part in? What's our responsibility? And he begins to lay it out here in verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, all right? Now, here's what I want to do. This particular verse has been used so many times out of context uh, by some, and by some I mean me, um, before I actually studied the passage the way that I ought to. And sometimes it's used to encourage young men who have stayed in mama's home too long right? And, uh, and mama's like, hey, I, I need something to get my child out. Hey, man, just take them, you know, Genesis 2.24. Tell them, man, they need to put their big boy britches up and get out of there, right? Get out of the house. Well, it's not really what the text is saying. That, that explanation would be inconsistent, not only biblically, but historically uh, to what the text would say. How do we know that? Well, when we look through the Israelites and the Jews, we understood that the men, when they grew up, they, they really didn't leave home. They remained a part of that home, if you will. Um, what they would do is, remember, it's not like today, life was so unbelievably difficult just to be able to make it. People were having children primarily to be able to kind of broaden the workforce, if you will, uh, to get the workforce because life was so hard and farming was so hard and the more kids that you had, it would help you. And so they would have a lot of children. But what these children would do is even as they would grow up, they would continue to take part in the family work and even take over the family business. The trade would be passed on to their children, so they wouldn't really leave the facility. In fact, this was so true that whenever something opposite would happen, if, if, if the kids actually left the home altogether, it would indicate that something was off. Stop and think just for a moment, Jesus' parable of, uh, of, of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, there's two brothers, right? And where are they? They're grown up, but they are still at home. They're at home, and they're working within the home. One of the, the, the younger brother wants to go off. Why does he want to leave? For good reasons? No, for bad reasons. He wants to go off and use his inheritance to be able to basically fulfill his own lustful passions. The older brother, who we always dog on, rightly so, he actually did technically what was right. He remained at home and took part, and he took care of the family. Now, he did it for all the wrong reasons. We know that, but you, I think you kind of get the point, they, it, was, it, was, it was common for these young men to be able to remain at home. In fact, tradition says it was actually the young woman who would leave her family, and she would come and she would join the, the, her husband's family and be in part. That's why, and this is probably the most important thing of the whole sermon right here, that's the reason why people would give a dowry or money to the parents who had five daughters, 
the one who had five daughters and they would come and want to marry one of their kids, biblically, you had to give him money. You understand where I'm going with this, right? I have five daughters. It means that, that, that when you come and you want to marry one of my daughters, you better show me the money, all right? That's biblical. I'm just standing on it. And the reason that they would give him the money is, again, is because basically what they were doing is they were taking some of the, re- the, the workforce out of the home. And because of that, they would give them some money for that child in, in, in a form of a dowry. So that's historically really what it happened. So when this command comes and says, uh, you must leave your father and mother, it can't be talking about primarily the physical location of that child. Then what does it mean? Well, the word uh, to leave literally means forsaking dependence upon. And what in essence it's saying, what in essence is teaching is, is that that relationship as a child, you were most dependent upon what? Your parents, for love, for care, for finances, for clothes, for food, for, for encouragement, right? For v- validity, for all these different types of things, you would rest on your parents. He says, when a person gets married, when you got married and said, I do, you left all that behind. Now no longer are, is your dependence going to be on your parents. Your dependence is now going to be with this one individual. So when you say, I do, you come together in a new, unique uh, relationship that now is superior to all other relationships. You get that? All other relationships. This is your prior- priority, you and your spouse. Where do you receive encouragement? Within this relationship. Where do you receive to care each other? In this relationship. Where do you seek uh, um, um, intimacy? Within this one relationship. Nowhere outside, but with in that relationship. And so that's what he's saying. And so when he talks about leaving, he also talks about holding fast. It's kind of the same idea. Holding fast, we understand it means to cleave. It means to cling together, to hold fast to. Here's the picture. They're leaving that else. They're coming together and they're being tightly bonded together, holding as tightly as they can. The idea would be as if, if you were to hold all the relationships that you had within your arms but pressure began to pull those relationships out. The very last one you would ever choose to be able to give up is that relationship with that spouse. You would give up other family relationships. You would give up aunts, uncles, moms, dads, friends, coworkers, whatever. But the last one that you would ever let go of is that one between you and your spouse. So we see kind of the picture. And look, I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. I mean, you go to a wedding, you kind of understand that this is what's going on, right? I mean, the guy and the girl, they come together. Who gives this woman to this man? And he says, we do. And right, and they give them together. Then they walk out. We now pronounce them husband and wife. May I be the first to introduce Mr. and Mrs. Michael William Kwiatkowski. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And so so then they go out the back and everybody understands, oh, they're going to start their life together. But what you oftentimes don't see is as they walk out the back door there are these apron strings that are connected to their children and their moms and dads in the front and they're just letting out those apron strings and not literally apron strings you're following me right and they walk out the door and this oftentimes becomes evident They, they understand okay this is supposed to be the new preeminent relationship but i think we have a hard time with the application because they go off and they move, and here's husband and wife, but when things begin to get a little bit difficulty, what happens? The kids have a tendency to begin to fall back on those previous preeminent relationships instead of leaning into the primary relationship that they've now committed themselves to. Would you agree? 
They, they kind of look back, and it kind of works like this. They have a falling out, and if, you know, your parents lived by-by, you swing by, say, oh, we just had a fight. It's just, I, I can't even begin to tell you how difficult he's being right now. And so, and, and they go to the parents. Now, let me say this. It's not so much that it's wrong to be able to go back to godly parents and ask for wisdom and for advice on how to navigate through life, but the majority of the time, that's not what's happening. What's happening is the wife is not feeling secure, so she's seeking security in the arms of someone else. She is leaving that relationship, going back to the parental relationship that she once had. That was right. That was true. And now instead of depending upon her husband or this, uh, the husband depending on, her, uh, uh, on his wife, now they're going and finding it somewhere else, and they fall back in with their parents. Now listen, it's very difficult to be able to cut those apron strings because if you're raising your kids, they should, look, look at this, for the most part, love you in some way. They're not always going to like you, right, parents? They're not always going to like you, right, parents? Okay, just making sure. I'm, I'm, I'm worried. All right, so anyway, and so they're not always going to like you, but what they do is they come and, and, and they respect you and, and, you've been, and, and you've been caring for them and they've, they've received this love and it's a safe place to be able to go and they want to be able to come back. But, but men, let me understand. Let me make you understand what happens when you still show that kind of commitment to your parents and your wife feels like she's just kind of hanging out there, that she's some kind of alien and that she's not the priority per individual in your life, that, that of all the relationships that she is the most important over your mom and over your dad and you take, you take the part of, you, you take the side of your mom or your dad or whatever it is, she feels unstable within the relationship. She doesn't know what to do. She understands that you have not really left, that you still have remained. The same exact thing happens with you young ladies. One of the things that I tell uh, ladies in, in, in counseling when we're first, uh, when we're talking about this principle is I talk about the issue is, hey, young ladies, you sometimes are very, very close to your husband. I get that. I really do understand the closeness, uh, or excuse me, of your father. He always took care of you. I, I, and I'll ask him, if anything ever goes wrong, if you were to break down on the side of the road, who would you call? My daddy. That's right, my daddy. I mean, and the girls never have the name. It's always daddy, right, on the phone. And they're going to immediately call who? Daddy, right, wherever it is. I said, now you need to change that because when you get married, it's no longer daddy. It's Mike or whoever your ultimate husband is. And that's going to be a change for you, and it's going to be a difficult change for you. Now, it's okay if you're married to somebody like me who can barely change a flat tire. It's okay when she calls you and goes, Mike, my, my tire's flat. You can say, call your daddy. All right, that's okay. That, that's all right, but... They need to be able to call first and foremost there. But when within the relationship, there seems, to be, there seems to be other people that are giving what only you and your spouse should be giving to each other, there's an inconsistency and there's instability and there's problems that begin to cause. How many times have we seen parents begin to cause difficulties for young people because they can't stop meddling? See, here, here's the bottom line. Or they, they open them themselves and they allow their kids to be able to come back and to and fro, and they're oftentimes taking sides. See, this isn't just hard for young people to be able to cut the, uh, the, the apron strings. It's hard for parents to cut the apron strings. Right, parents? And the reason is, now stop and think about this. Part of it is because it's a healthy issue. This has been the person that you have loved and cared for and watched over all these years. Then all of a sudden, some scumbag marries your daughter, Right? <laughs> And then, and then all of a sudden, it's just like, pff, done. We're done. Cold, and it's, it's not even like increments. It's cold turkey. 
You know what I mean? Some of the dads are like, <laughs> that's right, it's your wallet now, buddy. Right? Not mine. But it's very, very difficult to be able to just all of a sudden say, no, that's it. You know, I'm not the one. And it takes a godly parent oftentimes that when they come and they say, hey, listen, they begin to talk smack about their spouse, just sit in their side, uh-uh, I don't want to hear it. Go back to the house and work it out. Go back to the house and ultimately work it out. But do you know why parents oftentimes manipulate their kids and they don't want to let go of the relationship and they always want to be a part of ultimately what's going on? Here's why. is because they themselves have never understood the principle of leaving and cleaving with their own spouse. What they've allowed to happen is their priority of relationship has been their children for all of these years. And they, they receive their greatest comfort and their greatest encouragement and their greatest enlightenment and greatest everything else, satisfaction in the relationship with their kids. So they can't stay out of the relationship of their children because they don't really have much of a relationship for themselves between them and their spouse. Do you get that? Either way, it's not where God ultimately wants us to be. We need to understand, just hear this very carefully. The relationship that you have, your job called by God is to leave, to take this relationship. It is to be your priority, is to be the one relationship you will never let go of, is the one that you are supposed to cling with, with everything you have. It is what you're supposed to be putting the most effort in, the most energy in, and it is supposed to be that important to you. You are not to go outside of the marriage to be able to receive it for anyone else. And here's what people will ultimately say. But what if your spouse is not giving you what it is that you need? And I've heard that so many times. And you know what I do? Uh, and the way I normally respond to that, because I think what they're saying is, oh, it's okay for you now to go outside of the marriage and find that somewhere else. Do you think a preacher's going to say that? No. Here's what I say to them. Welcome to marriage, baby. <laughs> Welcome to marriage. But you don't understand. I married him to be happy. <laughs> I mean, that's still the best one, is it not, right? Oh, that is just so good. You kill me, right? And so you know, I, I, I got to be in this. I got to be in this. Here, here, here's what you do. Within the marriage, you come and you look for that person for all of those things, and they are not going to be able to meet it. It's why at that particular point, what you do is you trust and, and rely on the person of Jesus Christ. Because what is lacking in your spouse is sufficient in Christ, fully and completely. And the reason that people like to be able to, look, when you whine about your husband, when you whine about your wife all of the time, and look, sometimes you got a right to whine about it, all right? I know your husband, I know your wife, all right? And so sometimes you understand that there's some real tensions there, but your perpetual whining about your spouse says more about you and your inability to face and to rely on the sovereignty of God than it does show something about your husband. Does that make sense? So what you do is you, you rest in Christ and you say, well, 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 how biblically can we surround that? Because the relationship between the husband and the wife is supposed to picture what? Christ in the church. When you need something, where do you go? To Christ. Does Christ sit there and say, hey, listen, if you don't find what you're looking in me, you can go outside of this relationship with me to your idols and you can seek comfort and insecurity from them? No, not at all. What does he say? He says, ah, me and me alone. This is how we work it. Here's the deal. And we're going to go over this more. I understand your husband is not Jesus, okay? But you do have access to Jesus. We keep that within to, to leave and to cleave and to hold fast. That's what we do. Does that make sense? You guys follow me so far? All right, here's the second thing. Look, we're halfway. Time flies when you're having fun, right, Brother Dan? All right, so here we are. Second point, what does God do? 
if we come and we leave and we hold fast together, as, as it says in verse 24, then, then, then how do we become one flesh? What exactly does that mean? Well, when we talk about the word one flesh, we're immediately reminded of God's creative act of Eve. Remember how we created her? How did, ladies, ladies always get this right, how did God create man? He created him out of what? Dirt, right? Completely makes sense, right? Dirt. So he creates man out of dirt, but he creates woman completely in a, in a unique way, doesn't he? He takes the rib. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. He surgically removes the rib, and then he fashions this perfect gift to Adam. And then when he sees her, these are the verses just right above. When he sees her, he says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's speaking literally, right? I mean, this is literally the bone of his bone in the flesh of his flesh. But how does that whole one flesh union work for us who were like post Adam and Eve? Right? I mean, the last I checked, God's still not fashioning spouses out of ribs, right? Uh, that's not the way we end up finding our spouse, even though some might like that, right? So some, some single guys are like, I got a rib. You know, you could just take it, and God, here I am. Use me. And, um, and so, so, so we understand. So here, so here we are. I didn't see that coming. All right, so, so anyway... And so we understand this. And so what ultimately happens is he comes and he creates, and so it's one flesh. How does that look? I think normally when we think of one flesh, we think primarily physical, don't we? We think primarily physical. Would you agree? Guys, you've got to move your head or something, all right, so that you're alive. We think of the physical. We think of the marriage act, the intimacy of a man and woman coming together. Oh, wow, they became one flesh. We're, we're thinking of that intimacy there. I don't believe that the one flesh union is primarily about the physical. I really don't, because here's why, and hear this clearly, because I don't think the one flesh aspect of this scenario in this process is what man does. I believe it's what God does. I believe that the one flesh union of a man and woman coming together, what it ultimately is, is that's the expression. It's an outward sign of an inward reality of what God does. When a man and woman come together and say, I do. When a man and woman come together and say, I do, and that we're committing ourselves as a husband and wife, we are leaving and cleaving and recognize each other in a marriage. What God does then is he causes the one flesh union. What is that one flesh union? It's when God takes somehow the very fabrics of a man's life and a woman's life, and even though you can't see it in a very real, real way, he, he intertwines the fabrics of those lives and, and binds them together emotionally and spiritually in a very, very real bond. That's what it means when it comes one flesh. So what do we do? We leave and cleave. When we leave and cleave, in the side, then what God does is he then comes and he weaves those two things, th those two people together. So they're, not, they're two distinct individuals, but somehow on some level, in many levels, they are now one in the sight of God. I think this is exactly what Malachi was, was referring to. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Let me give you a little background. I'm going to cover a couple passages here to kind of unpack this. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, here's what's going on with Malachi. Everything's going wrong. The people are constantly rebelling against God, consistently, constantly rebelling against God at every turn. And so what happens is uh, Malachi comes and he begins to preach and he calls them to repent. One of the biggest problems they have is divorce, perpetual and ongoing divorce. They marry, they, they, they divorce, they give the, their wives a letter of divorce as, 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 as Moses had commanded them to, and then they just go on to the next relationship. So here, to be able to combat that, he comes and he says to them in Malachi 2.15, he says, did he not make them one? 
with a portion of the Spirit in their union. Now, let me paraphrase this for you. Here's, in essence, what he's saying. He's saying, don't you know that God made you one with your wife? And in spite of your treachery in divorcing her, there is still a demand of that spiritual bond that remains. Do you see what's going on? These guys are thinking they can just get in and out of marriage with no problem. They think as long as they have this legal contract, then everything that has been happening in the marriage, the leaving and cleaving, that's all done. What Malachi is saying is you don't understand. There's a spiritual bond between you and your wife that cannot be broken by some sheet of paper. You think you could just jump in one, leave another, and to be able to get another. There's a huge problem here. The problem is you're bound to that previous person because of an act of God. Now, somebody's going to sit back and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Is that really what the Word of God teaches? I think so. When we look into the Word of God, we see passages like John chapter 4 and verse 16. You know this passage well, at least probably familiar with it. Jesus sees the woman at the well, and he's trying to lead her to faith in himself. He wants her to see that he's truly the Messiah. And as they begin to talk back and forth, uh, the, uh, Jesus tells her there, he says, so go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus, and Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What, what you've said is true. So here's what's going on. Uh, let me just kind of unpack it real quick. He goes, hey, man, why don't you go tell your husband in turn, she sits back and says, I don't have a husband. She's speaking honestly. Why? Because in her mind, she was married, she divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. I don't know if that was five times, but it's supposed to be five times, all right? I lost track. All right, but you get to the point, and then she finally sits there and says, this marriage thing isn't working out for me. I I'm just going to live with a guy. So she begins to live with a guy. So in her mind, she's not married anymore. Why? Because of the letter certificate of divorce. She's not married anymore, and the one that she's living with is not her husband. Jesus says, it's completely different. He says, you've spoken correctly. You have five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Now, I want to point out two things. The one you're with right now, we're assuming she's living with and she's having relationships with, right? Which shows me that just, just, just physical intercourse is not what makes you ultimately married. It's a binding together by God when a couple comes together and they leave and they cleave and they come together for the purpose of marriage. It's part of, by the way, some people will sit back and go, well, that's not fair. They could just live together and not be bound together. Listen, the binding together is a blessing of God. That's the point. It's, it's a gift of God. It's a gift that I believe that God has given all people. It's, it's, it's his general grace, I believe. In other words, I don't think that God just does this for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. I believe that he does it as common grace to all people, even unbelievers who are married as it rains on the just and the unjust. Even when unbelievers get married, they take part in this one flesh union. Their relationship is woven together by God. And I would say the same is true even if a believer marries an unbeliever. This is why this, this intricacy and this weaving together is so important to God, and it's so pivotal with, within our understanding of marriage. This is why I think Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, why he makes the argument when he says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He didn't say you can't, he can't, you can, in the context of marriage, he's not saying you can't be yoked with an unbeliever. He's saying don't do it. Why? Because if you're a believer and they're an unbeliever, now at the point of marriage and you say, I do, and you come together, God's going to weave you together and you're going to be woven together in one flesh union with somebody that you have absolutely nothing in common with. Does that make sense? 
And so here's, here's where he's calling out, and he's, and, he, and he's trying to lead them in a completely different direction. Now, this is, this is where we find in John chapter 4 and verse 16. Uh, notice this. Uh, J- Jesus goes and he, and, he, and, he, and he calls, or he, he quotes. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong passage. He, he, he quotes from this same passage here in Mark chapter 19. In Mark chapter 19, in Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 7. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you see what he's quoting? What is he quoting? Genesis 2, verse 24. Now let me tell you the context that he's quoting this in. He was asked by the Pharisees, is there ever a right or is there ever a time that it's okay to go ahead and divorce your spouse? That's what he's, that's what he's asking. And so Jesus' answer is to quote, and go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where he says, once again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, here's what Jesus says. Here's the answer, his, his own addition to this. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here, here's what we often say. We think this is a command not to try to separate a man and a woman from their bond of marriage. This is what I think it's actually saying. I think it's, yes, it's warning us, don't try to attempt to be able to break that bond. But here's what he's really saying, you can't break that bond. It is a bond that has been woven together. When you say I do and you come in marriage, you two have become one. You are now one flesh. And the only way that that is ultimately broken is through death. And let me make sure I, I, I clarify something because I could see the wheels turning a little bit. It's probably more about the question about lunch than it is about what we're talking about. But, but let me get to this. So people are saying, well, then what about somebody who's been divorced and then is remarried? Now, you guys know my stance on this. I've laid it out extensively in the word of God. The Bible says time and time again, if you divorce and remarry, you've committed adultery with that person. It's just what it says. Go back and study it for yourself. It's not here to make anybody angry. This is all covered in grace. Now notice this. But here's the idea. The reason is, is because you can't undo that bond that God has created between those two flesh. flesh. That's, why, that's why divorce hurts so bad. You understand that, right? But, but here's what I'm trying to say is when you go to that next marriage, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So there's restoration in God once again, right? So when you get married, I don't think even though that bond exists, I think by the grace of God, he keeps you from living in perpetual adultery, okay? You're, you're not living in perpetual adultery because of the grace and the mercy of God. But let me say this, the bond is still there because of what God has ultimately woven together until death ultimately do you part. So do you see why divorce is so difficult? Do you see why divorce is so painful? And look, look let, me, let me say this. If that's been you, God is greater than your sin. He's got a hope for you. He's got new life for you. He can even take the marriage right now that you're in, and he can make it all that God would ultimately make it to be. And you can start right now living in that relationship for God's purpose for it, to live it out, to show what everybody else looks, what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? There's hope in Christ. This is not getting on you. This is just to be able to sit back and to be able to explain what the text of Scripture is teaching us. You know, the Bible uses this picture of the two coming together. The etymology of the word, the, the, the two coming one and becoming one flesh, actually pictures two pieces of paper that have been glued together. Did you do that when you were little kids? Remember when you were, uh, you know, and you had the paste and you had the little store in your elementary school and you were so excited to have enough money to get like, like rubber-tipped erasers and glue? Why, why glue? 
right? I mean, <laughs> you're in second grade. Here's some glue. Thanks, right? What am I going to do with it, right? And so you take it, and, and then uh, you know, all you know to do is glue sheets of paper together. And so you take two sheets of paper, and you're like, ah, two sheets. Now, one sheet. And you glue it together, and you're like, hey, look at what I do with my glue, right? And you're so excited about that. But if you've ever then tried to go back and tried to take the two sheets of paper apart, it's impossible. You cannot take the two apart without ruining the whole and damaging the whole. It's the picture of what a close bond you have with your spouse. It's why within, listen, I'm trying to just help you to make sure you understand this. It's why within the marriage you experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Because of that intricacy, because of that closeness, because of that love that you have with each other. One of, one of the things that I tell guys when, when we're kind of getting married or when they're getting married is I say, hey, listen, here's one of the principles you need to understand. What's cute in, mar- what's cute in dating is killer in marriage. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about there, right? If you're not married, you're like, what, what's that mean, cute? You mean like he's going to become like killer hot, like when we get married, he's cute, but now he's killer hot? No, we all wish that's how it worked, but um, it's not. <laughs> At least my wife does. Um, so it just doesn't, and Dan's wife. So it's um, so it just, uh, I saw that over there. So anyway, and so, so what, what, what does that mean? What it means is, is that you can be jovial and really funny in dating. I mean, if she goes for that extra piece of pie, you're going, oh, oh you better put the fork down there, a little, t- you know, fatty, fatty two by four. And she'll, oh, stop it. Give me that piece of pie, right? You say that in marriage, you may get that piece of pie up your head. You, know, you understand? It's changed. But have you ever wondered why, why, why is that? Why, why, does that, why does that do that? It's because of the one flesh union. You can't get away. You, you can't get away from it. Let me, let me passage, let me give you one more scripture passage. And we'll end here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Um, here, speaking again on marriage, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Why their own bodies? Because the two have become what? One flesh. And he says, And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever, uh, never hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here's why fighting within the relationship and demeaning your spouse never makes any sense because it always harms you. It always harms you. You never get one up. You know how you and your buddies used to always talk smack to each other? Some of you aren't guys. All right, so... Uh, you used to talk smack to each other, where you're like, oh, yeah, well, your mama, you know, and you, and you, ooh, you know, and you, and you say something to the other person, you get back. Well, guys never really get out of that. Dan and I do it. Chris and I do it, whatever. I call him Hardicus, you know, and, uh, you know, because of his heart. Anyway, and uh, so, so, you know, and, you know, you know, and, and, you know, it's so easy for them because all they do is go for the hair. I mean, that's just too simple, right? The other day, we were at the camp, and I was speaking for the, for the young people, and, um, and, uh, and, and Dan said some kind of sly comment to Adam. You guys remember Adam, something about him being fat or something. Right, Dan? No, no, that's the whole story. So that's my time. You shined and everybody loved you from last week. That's enough for you. So, so, so what happens is, is he's, he's like, you know, hey, yeah, his blubber or something like that, his big belly, whatever it is. And he goes, oh, and everyone's like, oh, 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 oh. And, and I had a response. And so I went up to, Chris, or to Adam and I just basically said, Adam, what you should say is, hey, could you repeat that again? Oh, I'm sorry, you already did. All right. <clears throat> okay, so because so, if you don't know, Dan, Dan, Dan stutters. Some of you are like, I don't understand what's going on. Dan stutters, all right. 
And so, look, that's brutal and it's awful. And then again, they go back to the hair and then I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. All right, so, 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 we, so we get all that. So here's the thing. When you're with your buddies, you can get up on somebody. And it actually, I gotta be honest with you, there's a part of you that just feels really good. <laughs> I mean, it just feels really good, right? There's never been a time in my life where my wife and I have been going after things that when I knew the exact perfect comeback to be able to come back on her and, and, and set it, that I felt any part of me that I won. Never felt like I won. Instead, I feel more crushed at the moment that those words come out of my mind and the crushing of my wife, even though at those moments I was angry with her. Why is it? The very simple principle, the one flesh. You and I cannot go after our spouse it's ironic to think that we can go after our spouse when we are now one flesh and think that somehow we will be better off by downing them or demeaning them. And the Bible is teaching very clearly you can't do it because every foul word that comes out of your mouth is just striking against yourself. You can't win this way. You can't win. And I love this at the very end because it brings it all back to the gospel. The very end, he says there, he says, just as Christ does the church. He says to him, he says, for no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. We go back to that. How do we love our spice? As Christ loves the church. How is he loving you? Grace and mercy and passion and goodness and, and everything that you and I do not deserve. He just keeps loading it on and loading it on and loading it on. And that's the picture. So two things that we see, what's, what's God's plan for marriage? What is his design for marriage? Well, it's a process. It's when you and I choose to come together and make this relationship preeminent over all other relationships. My question is, is it? Is it? Is it there that you are holding off and saying, these are the things that I need within a marriage, and if I can't get them, I'm not going anywhere out, whether to parent or some other person. I'm not going anywhere else to get what it is that I need. If my husband or my wife can't provide it, I know that Christ is sufficient in doing so. Are you holding fast? Are you clinging to? Men, do your wives know? See, here's, here's where to, you can answer the question. Yes, yes, I, I love my wife. Does your wife know in the security of your relationship? that she's the priority within it. See, the only way to really to answer this question really is for you to ask your spouse. And there have been times in my marriage where my wife has said, we just don't feel like we're the priority. I feel like right now the church is your priority. I feel like whenever somebody else has a problem that you're really quick to be able to get there, but you do it sometimes at our expense. That's hard. And at those moments, I have to repent from that and turn from that. Because if I don't repent and turn from it, number one, I'll be disqualified because I'm not the man of God that I need to be with my wife and taking care of her. So men, if you really want to know the answer to that question, ask her. Ladies, if you really want to know the answer to that question, ask him. Second part of that is the one flesh union. We talked about the negative and how the negative can bring you down, but aren't we encouraged today to understand that God has given you a relationship that is, is beyond really understanding, that you are woven together with this particular person, to work together, to love together. And here's the great thing. The more you love and give and die for that person, the better off you are. That's that mystery of marriage. And it's all because of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for today, and we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy.